0: All right, let's, let's look to the Lord. Lord, you're the, you're the author of these words. They were inspired by your spirit. And so you know the meaning, you know the application, you know what you want to do in our lives as we read again this great story of the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. And we pray, Lord, that you would just work in us to will and to do of your good pleasure. Lord, if any are unconverted today, we pray that your grace would arrest them and conquer them, and bring them to the feet of Jesus Christ as a willing servant, and open all of our eyes today, in Jesus' name. Amen. Here we go. Okay, I've got a question to start off with this morning. Have you been converted? It's a real question. It's not a, a fake one. Right. Have you been converted? What do we mean when we talk about something being converted? Yeah, changed. Yeah. That's the simplest way to put it, isn't it? Like for example, if, if you go into another country like Debbie and I did recently, we went to Trinidad, you need to convert your money into their money in order to buy things. So really it's, it's changing your money into something else, right? Or let's say you, you own an old farmhouse and you want to convert it into a bed-and-breakfast. Well, what are you doing? You're you're transforming that thing into something new. That's the idea behind conversion. It's God taking a person, a sinner, and changing them, converting, transforming them into a new being, a new individual. And this is a Bible word. Jesus said in Matthew 18.3, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. So that shows us the absolute essential nature of conversion. Unless you're converted, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven, according to Jesus Christ. This isn't something that you can take or leave, or some people might want to have this experience and not me. No, if you're going to go to heaven, you need to be converted. And notice I'm not asking if you've ever joined the church. I'm not asking if you've been baptized. I'm not asking if you have raised your hand at an altar call or a Billy Graham crusade. Because you can do all of those things and not be converted. You cannot be changed. A person must be changed, transformed, to enter the kingdom of heaven. And although uh, there have been many amazing conversions in the history of the church, I don't think there have been any more amazing than Saul of Tarsus. His was dramatic. Uh, It's undoubtedly the most famous conversion in church history. And Luke, at this point, has already told us the stories of Stephen and Philip. Stephen was the first martyr of the church, and Philip was the first missionary of the church. And now he's going to go on to tell us the stories of two conversions. Saul in chapter 9, and Cornelius in his household in chapter 10. But. In Luke's mind, Saul's conversion was of supreme significance. And we know that because he repeats the story three times. We have his conversion told us here in chapter 9. Later, the Apostle Paul will recount his conversion story again in chapter 22 and also chapter 26. And Luke gives great space to this conversion narrative. And what I see of special note in his account of his conversion is the sovereign grace of God. When Saul was converted, he wasn't seeking Christ. He was trying to stamp out any influence of Christ and destroy the people of Christ. He wasn't seeking the Lord. He wasn't open to trusting in Christ, like we talk about. Uh, he didn't use his free will to make a decision for Christ. We all f- often talk about making a decision for Christ. Well, what happened here is that He didn't make a decision for Christ. Christ made a decision for him. He didn't accept Christ. Christ accepted him. It was just a reversal of what we often think. The initiative was all on the part of the Lord Jesus. And that makes sense because the rest of the New Testament tells us things like the the natural man can't understand the things of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians 2.14 And John 8.43 it says the natural man can't hear Christ's word. In John 3, verse 3 and 5, it says that the natural man can't see or enter the kingdom of God. He's blind and deaf to the things of the Spirit and dead in his trespasses and sins. And so if a person's going to come into the kingdom, God's going to have to invade his world and he's going to have to reveal himself or the sinner is going to be lost forever. But... According to God's sovereign grace, he came to Saul and he revealed himself to Saul and he brought him into his kingdom. That's what we're going to read about this morning. Just as in the last message, remember, we were here together last week, right? We talked about Philip, Philip's talking to the Ethiopian eunuch, right? Okay, so the real hero of that story was not Philip. It was the God who called Philip to bring the gospel to that eunuch. So, in this case, the the hero of this story is not Saul. The hero of this story is Jesus Christ who reveals himself and subdues the stubborn and proud and rebellious will of Saul and brings him into his kingdom as his child. Prior to Acts chapter 9, Saul was an enemy of Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 22 verse 9, Paul says, So then I thought to myself that I had to do many things hostile the name of Jesus of Nazareth. He was, Saul was Jesus's enemy. He looked at Jesus as his enemy. And Saul was everything, doing everything he could to conquer Jesus and exterminate God's people. And so what does Jesus do? He conquers Saul. Saul wants to fight with Jesus? Okay, good luck. Let you try that. Let's see who's going to win. Jesus comes and he conquers Saul by his mighty power. And before any person is converted to Jesus Christ, his will is set against Christ. The sinner doesn't want to have Christ to rule over him. He wants to do his own will. He's happy doing his own will. Um, The last thing he wants is to surrender his will to Christ and subdue his will to the Lord But that's exactly what conversion requires. Let me say that again. Conversion requires that the sinner surrender his will to Christ's. I know there's a lot of people that will say, conversion is a matter of simple faith. You can accept Jesus as your Savior and live in rebellion to Him and never surrender to Him as Lord. And I I believe that's a lie. I, I don't find that anywhere in Scripture. I find scripture over and over and over telling us that Jesus Christ is Lord. In fact, it tells us in Romans 10, 9, if you will confess Jesus as Lord. Okay, not as Savior, as Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. So coming into salvation means that you are going to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. Now, of course, nobody is going to live out obedience to Christ as Lord perfectly. Nobody does it. But yet, we all do it impractically. It's the bent and direction of the life of the true child of God. Instinctively, there's something within him once he comes to know Christ where he recognizes Him as Lord and that he needs to obey the Lord Jesus Christ. So, I want to take up our story this morning by focusing on what Jesus graciously did to subdue and conquer Saul's stubborn, proud, and sinful heart and make him a trophy of His grace. What did the Lord do in order to bring Saul to his knees? And so we're going to focus on three things. The long suffering of Christ, the revealing of Christ, and the subduing of Christ. I want to focus on those three aspects. So let's read the story. This is Acts 9, and we're going to look at verses 1 through 9 today. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest... And asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank." Now, let's consider the long-suffering of Christ this morning. What do we know about Saul so far in our reading of the book of Acts? So far, when we come to 9 verse 1, what has Luke already revealed to us about him? Well, the very first thing we know about him comes from chapter 7 when Stephen was being stoned. Do you remember all the the people there that were taking up stones? They laid their coats at the feet of a young man named Saul. And in chapter 8 verse 1, it tells us that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. Many scholars believe that Saul was actually the one that was overseeing or in charge of the execution, and that's why they were laying their their coats at his feet, because he was the one directing the whole thing. And that would make sense when you read chapter 8 verses 1 to 4, and then chapter 9, and some things from 22 and 26, and put all of the New Testament evidence together, Saul was trying to get rid of Christians any way he could. In chapter 8, verse 3, it says, But Saul began ravaging the church like a wild animal, a lion on the prowl, ravaging the church, entering house after house. And uh, it may be that he's entering house after house because that's where the church was meeting, in houses. So they would go where the church met, find the leaders of the church meeting, drag them off. And he would drag off men and women, interestingly, not just the men. And he would put them in prison. In chapter 9, verse 1, it says, Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest. He's breathing out threats and murder. He's not content just with imprisoning them or arresting them. He wants them killed. And notice the little word still. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder. So that would take us back to chapter seven, where Saul began to breathe out threats and murder. And uh, those who who study these things tell us it was anywhere between one and three years from the death of Stephen to the conversion of Saul. So he's had some time to cool down, but he's not cooling down. He's still breathing out threats and murder. It's, It's almost like he's obsessed with this. In fact, 26.11 says he was furiously enraged against the disciples. He's obsessed with stamping out the way. He's become not a calm and collected individual making rational decisions. He's become a raging fanatic when it comes to trying to get rid of Christians. And then chapter 9 verse 5, when the Lord finally reveals himself to him, he says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Not just persecuting Jesus' disciples, but persecuting Jesus Himself. We'll look at that a little bit more later on. In 1 Timothy 1, verse 15 and 16, Paul writes later on in his life, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate His perfect patience, or in quotes, long-suffering, as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. So one of the reasons why the Lord saved Saul and made him into Paul was because he wanted him to be an example of the perfect patience or the long-suffering nature of Christ. He wanted him to be an example for those who would believe in him later for eternal life. Saul was one of those people that you would never expect to be converted. Never in a million years would you think this guy is going to become a Christian. Yeah. Right? His entire life as he knew it would be over if he embraced Christianity. Does anybody here remember the name Madeline Murray O'Hare? Mm-hmm. Who said oh, who said yes? Anthony. <laughs> Anthony is oh, okay. Okay. So Very hardcore. hardcore Atheist. She started a group called um American Atheists, and she had the American Atheist magazine, and it was her goal to rid public schools of prayer and Bible reading, which she was effective at doing. Um, This would be like Madeleine Murray O'Hare being responsible for getting prayer back in schools. Or Anton LaVey, the founder of the Church of Satan. It would be like him evangelizing all the Satanists in America and bringing them back to Christ. That's what it's like for the Apostle Paul to get saved (laughs) because he's going to the very people that he tried to kill and he's becoming one of them and he's joining arms with them. Remember when he first became a Christian they didn't know what to do with him and they were afraid of him because of his reputation. But I think one of the reasons that the Lord decided to save Saul, just one of the reasons, is that to prove that he can save anybody. So that we would have hope for that mom or dad or brother or sister that seems like there's no way, no way they're ever going to become a Christian. Wait a minute, nothing is too difficult for the Lord. Nothing is too difficult. So before Jesus conquered Saul, Jesus had to suffer a long time with Saul. He had to be very, very patient, waiting on him, waiting for that right time in order to subdue him. Every time Saul arrested another Christian, or every time Saul bound them in chains, or every time Saul had them executed, Jesus was feeling the persecution of that moment. Jesus suffered a long time with Saul. Now, if you were Jesus, and you saw this guy over there, this antagonistic guy who is your enemy over and over and over snubbing you, spitting in your face, I think, what would we do? <laughs> that, that guy was probably gonna be dead on the spot and we're gonna throw him into hell, right? But Jesus didn't pour out his wrath on him. He didn't snuff his life out. Jesus waited and waited and waited. And so my question for you has Jesus conquered you? Not just Saul, but have you been conquered by the grace of Jesus Christ? Has he subdued your will and brought you to himself? And if he has done that, wasn't there a time when the Lord had to exercise long suffering in your life because of your life of sin and rebellion to him? I mean, think back at your life before you, BC, before you came to Christ, what was your life like? Was it filled with fornication, or adultery, or lying, or stealing, or drugs, and alcohol, or pornography, or, I mean, I'm just mentioning the ones that come to mind, but what was your life like back then? Were you continually aggravating the Lord by a life of disobedience and rebellion to Him, and didn't He have to wait and suffer long? The long suffering of Jesus Christ. Have you ever thanked God for His long suffering in your life? Have you ever just thought, oh, Lord, I am so grateful that you didn't end my life. And you had every right to do so. And if you had cast me into hell, you would have been perfectly just. I couldn't have complained. I couldn't have argued about that because I deserved it. But Lord, you were long-suffering to me. So we see the long-suffering of Christ in Saul's life. Secondly, let's look at the revealing of Christ says in verse 3, As he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. Now, chapter 22, verse 6 says it was at noontime, the middle of the day. And it also tells us it was a very bright light. Acts 26, 13 says, It was a light from heaven brighter than the sun. Now, I don't think we know of any kind of light that could actually be brighter than the sun, but this one was. This was brighter than the sun. And it was so bright that it ended up blinding Saul for three days until he was healed. Now, what was this this light that was so bright that it actually blinded Saul? What could that have been? That's what I think it was. I think it was the glory of Christ. Remember... There was a time when Jesus was transfigured, and it says, the Bible says his, that his face shone like the sun when, when he revealed his glory to uh, Peter, James, and John, I believe, were the three up on the Mount of Transfiguration. How would Saul have been feeling right about that time when he sees this incredibly bright light at noontime? I think he's probably terrified. What in the world is going on? What is this light? What's happening to me? And notice that it happened suddenly, it says in verse 3. No one saw this coming. This was totally unexpected. Out of nowhere comes this extremely bright light. So when Jesus had suffered long enough, he blew a whistle, and it's over. Game over. He, he, he's going to deal with Saul right here and right now. And then it says, And he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So whoever this being was that's speaking from heaven knew all about Saul. He knew his name. He calls him by name. He knew that he had been persecuting him. And he was also able to talk to him in his own language. You know? So whoever this being was, he knew all about him. Notice that Jesus didn't say, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my people? Why are you persecuting my church? How could Saul be persecuting Jesus? Jesus wasn't anywhere around there. Jesus is in heaven. The people he's persecuting are the ones on earth, right? His, his people, his church. But that just tells us that the incredible union and tie and connection that Jesus in heaven has with his people on earth so that when they hurt, he hurts. Right? Like if you take a hammer and, you, and you're hammering a nail and you hit your thumb... Your head knows that your hand's been hit. The head is in heaven, but it knows every time one of the people on earth is struck by an enemy of the cross. Someone once said, no blow hit on earth goes unfelt in heaven. The Lord feels it and knows it. So what would these words have done to Saul? The words, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? How would would that have hit home to Saul? I I think it would have devastated him because remember Saul was a religious man Saul believed in the God of the Old Testament the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob he was a strict Jew, he was a Pharisee he wanted to serve the God of the Bible and now he finds out the God of the Bible has a son named Jesus Christ and he has been trying to exterminate the very people of God that he pretends to worship or claims to worship so this would have been devastating to him the guilt that he would instantly have felt. He's been killing the people that God loves, the people that God has saved. He's been killing them and imprisoning them and binding them. He's guilty of murder many times over. Now he's flat on his face in the dust and he's reeling from this revelation that the people he has hurt and caused to suffer and killed were the very people of God. And he's been fighting against God, not against these people that he thought he was. In Acts 26.14, there's another sentence inserted that we don't have in Acts 9. And it's this, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. That's another thing that the Lord told Saul. It's hard for you to kick against the goads. Now, a goad is a long stick with a pointed end. And a farmer will hold on to that while he's trying to plow a field. And if the ox won't go, he sticks him. And it gets the ox walking again, so he can plow his field. It's a way to compel the ox to keep moving. And the Lord says to Saul, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. In other words, I've been prodding you, trying to get you to go, and you've been resisting. And it's only been hard on you. you you've been suffering the, um, the guilt of continually resisting. Now, what would those goads have been in Saul's life? What kind of goads was God using to prod him? I think it was probably the life and the death of Stephen in a great measure. Stephen was a man who knew the gospel, preached the gospel. Remember his face shone like an angel when he was giving his testimony before the Sanhedrin. He, He saw a vision of Jesus standing up to receive him, and he announced that before he died. He had a remarkable martyrdom. Saul witnessed the whole thing, and Saul knew what Stephen believed. In fact, you know, Saul extorted, um, he extorted a, a confession amongst the people before he would imprison them or even kill them. And I'm sure that they were giving confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the only Savior of sinners. Saul had heard the gospel over and over and over through the lips of the people of Jesus Christ. He's heard the gospel, and it's been a goad to him, and he's heard the example of Stephen. He's seen the example of Stephen. God's prodding him, but he doesn't want to go. And he says, Saul, it's hard for you. This has been hard for you. You're kicking against the goads. But here the Lord is going to conquer Saul right now, once and for all. And he says, if you don't go the easy way, then I've got another way to go. We're going to go the hard way. The next thing he says in verse 5 is Saul responds, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, the Nazarene, whom you are persecuting. So Saul knew whoever this being was, he was the Lord, the one speaking from heaven. Now he may not have known who the Lord was, but he knew that whoever this was, he had to be the Lord. And so Jesus left him in no doubt I am Jesus. Who are you, Lord? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting. Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. And people today try to say, you can be saved without receiving Jesus as your Lord. Well, tell that to Saul. Saul couldn't be saved without receiving Jesus as Lord. He knew exactly who Jesus was. You can't slice Jesus up into like a pie, 10 pieces, and take, oh, I like that flavor and I like that flavor, but I don't like that, so I'm just gonna eat those pieces of pie and leave the rest. When you become a Christian, you receive Jesus in all that he is. Right? You receive him as a a whole person. And he is the Lord. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He is prophet, priest, and king. He's everything. So you receive him as everything when you become a Christian. Amen. At this point, in Acts chapter 9, verse 5, Jesus has revealed himself to Saul. When did Jesus reveal himself to Saul? Was it when Saul was seeking Jesus? No. Of course not. Saul wanted nothing to do with Jesus. When did Jesus reveal himself to you? Was it when you were seeking after him? You sought after him because he sought after you first. The Bible says no man seeks for God. Romans 3.11 The Lord, if you're a Christian, the Lord sought you. Isn't there a great song, He sought me and he bought me with his redeeming blood? Oh, yeah. I love that line of that song. It's true. It's, it's biblical. It's true. The Lord sought you. That's why you're a Christian. And folks, this revelation that Jesus makes, you say, well, that was Saul. That was like a, a one and a lifetime thing. The Lord doesn't do that to anybody else. He revealed himself to Saul, but to nobody else. Well, he might not do it as dramatically. He might speak, not speak from heaven to you, but he will, if he's going to save you, he's going to reveal himself to you. It might be through the lips of a preacher, maybe not a voice from heaven, but he will reveal himself to you. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says that God is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God and the face of Christ. This is what the Bible says. God has sh- and he's not talking about only apostles here. He's talking to every Christian. God has shown in our hearts. If you haven't had God shine in your heart, you're not saved. This is what happens to a believer. God shines in their hearts and he gives them the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Or remember when Jesus was talking to Peter, and he said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, son of John, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Reveal what to you? Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Flesh and blood didn't reveal that to Peter. God did. That's why Peter was a follower of Christ. God revealed himself to Peter. If you are saved today, God has revealed himself to you. God has taken the blinders off and let you see something of the glory of Christ. You should feel so privileged. Do you know how many people in this world do not see the glory of Christ? They've never had this vision of Christ, and you see it? You are so privileged. You, You are what you're... You know, you're, you're part of the SEAL team. You, you're the elite. <laughs> you're God's, you're God's <laughs> jewels, His diamonds in this world. He's collected you and you are His, like Jerome was saying earlier, you're His precious treasure. That's why you see and others don't. Without this revelation, all a person has is some head knowledge that may it probably is not going to affect their life all that much. But the difference between someone who only hears the preacher versus someone who hears the voice of Christ through the preacher is this revelation we're talking about. So has Jesus revealed himself to you? Ask yourself that question. Do I see him? Do I see something of his glory? Not only has he been long suffering with me, but has he revealed himself to me? Let's look at the third one, the subduing of Christ. In Acts 22.10, there's another line that we need to insert here. Saul responds to the Lord, and he says to him, What shall I do, Lord? What shall I do, Lord? This should be inserted between Acts 9.5 and Acts 9.6. The Lord had just identified himself as Jesus, and so I suspect there may have been a real long pause between I am Jesus whom we are persecuting and what shall I do, Lord? I, I think he was sh- probably shocked. And it, I think it probably would have taken a while for him to, 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 to grasp exactly what he's understanding. That revelation would have knocked the wind out of him. It would have been startling. All along he believed that God was pleased with him by arresting and killing Christians and all of a sudden he had to dramatically change his mind about all of that. And so he's thinking, oh no, what have I done? I'm guilty of persecuting the Lord of heaven and earth. I'm damned, I'm undone, I'm going to hell. So when he says, what shall I do? It's almost like on the day of Pentecost when Peter's preaching, and the people there say, brethren, what shall we do? Because Peter has said, you're guilty of murdering your Messiah. What shall we do? Repent and be baptized. I think that's a similar situation Saul's in. Lord, what do I do? I, my guilt is more than I can bear. I, what do I do in this situation? How can I escape your wrath, Lord? I deserve it. And it seems to me that it's at this point in our narrative that Saul is converted. Because Saul now acknowledges Jesus as Lord and is asking Lord, what do you want me to do? He's taking orders from Jesus. He's not calling the shots anymore. He's the servant. The slave. Following the Lord's orders to him. In fact, when we get to chapter 9 verse 17 and Ananias comes to Him three days later, he's going to call him Brother Saul. (laughs) So here's a Christian, Brother Saul. But the Lord says, get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. So the Lord starts issuing the orders. Up until now, it seems like Saul was in complete command. He's in complete control. He's doing this, and he's doing that. When someone is saved... That person instinctively begins to hear the voice of Christ and there is a part of him, not perfectly, but he begins to take orders and obey the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it says that the men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. The other men saw the light. It was flashing around them as well as Saul and they heard a voice, but they didn't understand the voice. That's what we get from uh, Acts 22, verse 9. It says they didn't understand the voice. It was like in John 12, 29, where people heard God's voice, but they, they thought it had thundered because they couldn't understand it. They, they heard the sound of it, kind of like I do sometimes. I don't have the greatest of hearing. And I'll hear noises, but I can't distinguish the words. I can't understand exactly what words were said. I think it was kind of like that. They, they knew that they had heard a sound, but they couldn't distinguish what the sound meant. So it says, Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. He'd been blinded. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. So the one who had anticipated riding high and mighty into Jerusalem as the great persecutor of the church, would had to be led by the hand like a tame kitten. God had completely shattered the old Saul. He's gone. He's broken. He's dead. And there's a new... Paul, in his place. The light that shone from heaven was so bright and powerful, it left him blinded. Have you ever tried to look directly into the sun? If you do it too long, it can blind you. Well, it actually blinded. This wasn't the sun. It was the glory of Jesus, but it actually blinded Saul. And it says, he was there three days without sight and neither ate or drank. Now, we're not told why. Why? And so we can maybe speculate a little bit why was was this a deliberate fast that I'm going to fast now that I become a Christian? Maybe. But it seems to me he was probably so traumatized by this experience that he didn't have any appetite. In fact, this would give him some time for his soul to catch up with his brain and for him to get acquainted with Jesus, who is the Lord. It tells us that he was praying somewhere in this, I don't know the verse number, but he was praying during these three days and three nights while he was waiting for Ananias to come to him. He's talking to the Lord. He's getting to know Jesus. He thought Jesus was dead, and now he realizes no, he's alive, and he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And he's the one I'm going to serve the rest of my life. So Jesus Christ subdued Paul. He brought his rebellious will into submission. Jesus had suffered a long time. He was long suffering with him. But then Jesus at the right time revealed himself to him. And then he actually conquered his will. Bringing him to surrender as his servant. And those are the three things that you're going to find when someone is converted. The first one's passive, the Lord passively waits and is patient, but then he begins to actively work, first by revealing himself in your soul, in your heart, and then he not only works on your heart and your soul, but on your will, he enables you, inclines that will to surrender and to submit itself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So the question for you this morning is, have you been converted? Have you bowed to Jesus Christ, surrendered your life to Him? Have you waved the white flag of unconditional surrender? If you're still fighting against Him, you're still His enemy. The Lord has friends and He has enemies in this world. Which one are you? Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Before you're justified by faith, you don't have any peace with God. You're the enemy of God. You're at enmity with Him. You're warring against Him. Now, you may not realize that. Most people would never dream that they're actually warring against God, but that's the kind of language the Bible used. If while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of His Son, much more having been reconciled, we should be saved by His life. So we were enemies of God. But He invites us into His family as friends and reveals Himself to us and shares intimate fellowship with His people. Has that happened to you? Have you surrendered to him and waved the unconditional white flag of surrender and said, Lord, I'm yours. Do in my life what you will. What do you want me to do, Lord? Just like Saul. You know, we've heard the old saying, we have been saved, we are being saved, we will be saved. Well, you could say the same thing of conversion. We have been converted, but we're still being converted. And we will be perfectly converted one day. The word converted means changed. Yeah, the Lord has changed us. If any man is in Christ, he's a new creature. All things are passed away. Behold, all things have become new. There's that initial radical change. But then there's a whole life of continual change. At least there ought to be. Right? There ought to be change in our life. And there's going to be a glorious day when there's going to be a big change. We're going to go out of this body of sinful flesh and into a new glorified body of perfect holiness where we'll worship and serve him forever. There's our ultimate conversion. So this is a message not only to people who are not yet converted, but for people who are. Surrender to Jesus Christ as Lord today. What is that area of your life that you know is not pleasing to the Lord, but you rebelliously continue? Let's see if, 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 is there an area like that that you can identify in your life? If there is, today is the day for us as Christians to repent and sur- to surrender our will again to the Lord, the Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus Christ. He won't allow us to have rivals forever. He's long-suffering, but you, don't try his patience, friends. Don't, don't, don't put him to the test. Surrender. Repent of that sin this morning. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for showing us your dramatic work in the life of Saul. But Lord, we know it's, it's a picture and an illustration of what you've done in millions of lives of people around the world. Pray, Lord, that it would have its effect in us today. Lord, put your finger on the area of our life that is not pleasing in your sight. Help us, Lord. Give us the grace of your spirit to repent, to turn And to turn to you, Lord, in full confession. Lord, we want to walk lives pleasing to you. Enable us today. In Jesus' name, amen.